this is episode 40 with Paul Oneid. We discuss how you can optimize your training and life by strategically designing and executing on your daily behaviors, habits, and structures. Welcome to 8 Billion Gifts. This is your host, Sohil, a footballer, creative, and student. On this show, we talk to all kinds of people to discover their stories, their mindset, and their unique gift. Welcome to the podcast. I am here with Paul Oneid. Paul, thank you for joining. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you here. Have you been able to enjoy the beautiful weather we are having? I have, actually. I just got back from uh, from the, the illegal gym. Um, I just uh, I went for a walk this morning with my dog. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm big on the outdoors. I, everything about this summer for me is going to be about getting outside more. I just find everything's better when you're in the sun. Oh, it makes a big difference. Waking up and having the sun come coming through your window. I went out for a training session this morning and just being out in the sun, it is a game changer for your whole day. Absolutely. And I mean, if you want to get all scientific about it, uh, starting your day with sun exposure is going to set off your circadian rhythm. So if you get outside first thing in the morning, you see the sun over the horizon, your body's going to start that hormonal cascade of, of your circadian rhythm, and then you'll have more restful sleep at night. So it makes you feel better in the moment. It makes your day go a lot smoother, and then you sleep a lot better at night. So nothing to complain about. Well, I am excited for today's talk because you're going to be providing us with a lot of information just like that. But uh, before we get into all that, Paul, I think a great place to start is to have you introduce yourself just so everybody can get to know more about you. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Paul O'Need. I am a strength coach uh, here in Ottawa, Ontario. I own the company Master Athletic Performance, and I'm also the co-owner of the coaching platform Coaches Corner University, where we provide um, a university level education to coaches on a weekly basis and ongoing and then I also have an app called MetriLife that's a lifestyle monitoring and tracking app that helps you with your habits and behaviors. Uh, I've been coaching for about 16 years now. Um, I've coached all the way from high school athletes into the NCAA and CIS uh, and then into the pro ranks in a variety of sports. I've worked at three different universities in the States and then head strength coach here at Queen's University in Canada for a year. I have a master's in exercise science and a master's in sports management. Uh, I also compete actively in powerlifting and have been ranked in the top 20 all time in two different weight classes and uh, trying to get back on the platform now after a bit of a hiatus. So hopefully coronavirus allows me to do so in the, in the next year, hopefully. So extensive experience and out of curiosity, what are your numbers? Because I, I see your posts on Instagram and you're lifting heavy. <laughs> you're lifting heavy. So I, I think it would be cool to fill everyone in with some of your PRs. Sure. Uh, so in competition, I've squatted 805 pounds. I have bench pressed 400, 430 pounds and I've deadlifted 725 pounds. That's big. And so now you're, you're looking to slowly make the transition back into getting to competitions, I guess, when that opens up. Yeah, so I, I had registered for a competition in February and I was planning on going and like about six weeks before the competition, uh, they changed the travel regulations mandating the, the COVID testing prior to boarding your flight home. Uh, had they not instituted that, I, I probably still would have gone. Um, so 
my, my body's feeling good. I'm healthier than I have been in years. It's just a matter of getting the opportunity to showcase it. Um, I'll likely be competing in a bit of a lighter weight class than I have been in the past. I used to compete at 242 um, or 110 kilos. And I've been walking around at about 105 kilos. So I'd likely make the weight cut down to 100. And uh, some of my best numbers have been at 100 kilos. And now that I'm carrying a lot more muscle mass than I used to, should be should be a pretty good experience. One thing that is great about being an athlete and being a coach at the same time is you're doing the training and you're going to competitions. So you know a lot of what it is actually like to be an athlete, right? And then you also have a lot of extensive experience at various levels and in many different locations. So I'm guessing that dynamic of actually training and training at a high level must help you with coaching as well. I started competing in powerlifting because I was coaching. It was it was in an attempt to make me a better coach. So when I moved to to South Florida to begin my master's degree, I was working as an intern strength coach that first summer before I started school. And it like I knew a lot. I was coming from a very high level. Like the auto, the University of Ottawa is a tremendous exercise science program or human kinetics program, and uh, I had the knowledge. The problem is, is the kids didn't give a shit what I had to say because I was a white, short white kid from Canada who had never played professional sports. I never played football at a high level. And here I am trying to talk to this kid who ended up getting drafted in the third round and winning two Super Bowls. I'm trying to teach him how to squat. It wasn't until I started powerlifting that they said, oh, coach is, coach is practicing what he preaches. He's, doing, he's asking of himself the same things he's asking of us. It gave me credibility. And then as I progressed through my career, that credibility became empathy. It became the ability to know that if I'm programming something for you, I've done it before. I know how it feels. I know what you're going, what you're going to be experiencing. And I know what type of adaptations we're going to be looking for out of it. So if I, if on my side, I don't have that perspective, how am I supposed to, to be able to act as this, objective view of the athlete's complaints, right? Because an athlete is going to be, you know, giving you reports that are biased based on their emotional state, based on their physical state, based on their environment. And you have to be that sounding board and that filter that says, okay, what's reality? What's perception? And then try to blend the two to adapt the program for that person. If you can't be a filter, you're useless. So something that I, I try to, impress upon those that I mentor is you have to practice what you preach. You have to be a product of your product, right? I am my own business card. At the end of the day, you're not going to ask financial advice from a homeless person. So why would I go to a strength coach who doesn't know how to make himself strong or herself strong? Like gender aside, there are a lot of female strength coaches that I would absolutely trust to program for me because they know how to get themselves and others strong. There's always going to be this, uh, this rebuttal of, Oh, so-and-so never played like Jeff Van Gundy, the, the head, the head coach of the, the Miami heat. He looks like a lawn gnome. He's never played basketball before, but he's been around basketball his entire life. And he paid his dues and he's he ate, slept and breathed basketball his whole life. There are outliers to every rule and you can't prove it by the exception. So 
For the most part, I would say that in order to be an effective coach, you have to have experience in it. Like the, the effectiveness as a coach, it comes down to three things. It's education, experience, and uh, education, experience, and uh, communication, right? So how well you can communicate to the athlete, how well you can convey the information that you have, and how much knowledge you have of the actual training process because you've gone through it yourself. And that's one thing I really like about you is you're very technical with what you do. You pay attention to the details. And that's a product of actually having, one, trained at the high level, trained at so many different levels, but then also having coached athletes at various levels. And you've been exposed to so many different things, right? And, and once you have that as part of your experience, well, now you can actually execute on that in terms of your coaching. Let's take, for example, I have a youth soccer player that comes to me and says, Paul, you know, I've been working my butt off. I want to go play pro. And I can look them square in the face and say, I don't believe you've been working your butt off to play pro because I've coached these pro athletes and they work much harder than you. So here's the perspective of this is what this athlete was doing and this is why they were successful. Are you willing to go to this level to achieve your goal? Does your attitude and, and action align with your goals? And, and if they're able to say yes, well, then absolutely, let's go give it a try. But at the end of the day, having that perspective and having that experience really allows me to, to give that athlete the idea of this is what it's going to take. Like, I remember having that conversation with uh, our mutual friend, Antonius. You know, I trained him for many years and he was playing college here. And I was like, listen, man. You have to be better. If you want to go to where you want to go, you have to be better. And he stepped up. He had a few injuries here and there, but he was able to go overseas and play pro and, and be relatively successful. And now he's moved into coaching, but it wasn't until I was able to have that conversation with him that it kind of clicked. Yeah, definitely. Let's get into some topics around training. So I think a great place to start is the talking about the concept of individual differences, because much of training, much of trying to improve, trying to make progress is going to be being able to find what works for you, right? And there's never going to be one way that suits everybody. So I'd love for you to give us some insight on the concept of individual differences and why that is important um, to keep in mind when someone's looking to achieve a certain training goal. So um, essentially when we get a new client or we get a new athlete come in, every coach is going to have some form of assessment, whether it be a physical assessment, cognitive assessment, some sort of lifestyle in totality assessment. And then based on the answers to those questions, that coach is going to make an educated guess as to where that starting point is. And when we look at effective starting points, we always look at the research and we look at our own experience. So we say, okay, based on uh, the relevant literature that I've looked at, the best course of action for this athlete would be to start at A. But because of these contraindications in their, uh, in their intake, we're going to start them at B. So we have this educated guess of they are going to start at B based on the science and their intake. Well, okay, we start them from that starting point and then we start to see their responses to, to what's going on. 
Now, again, based on the literature, if you see X, like this response, you have to go to this place. If you see a lack of that response, you have to go to that place. And it ends up being this pick your own adventure of leaning back on the research and the knowledge that you have, looking at the response of the athlete and making educated guesses along the way. So you have, and unless you have a very deep understanding of the theoretical framework around training, you're not going to be able to make the most educated guesses based on the responses of your athletes. But as you can see, at every step, there is another turn in the road. Each single athlete is going to want to take different paths, right? If, if you wanted to lose weight and I wanted to lose weight, we would both go about it different ways because we're two different people. The science will give us what the average person should experience, and it'll give us a way to explain the responses that we see along the way. But at the end of the day, we need to know how to manipulate variables to fit with the individual. And you, that sounds really complicated in, in practice, but the reality is it's not. So let's take diet, for example, because it's just a very simple application. I start you on X number of calories. We have two different people. They're both eating the same amount of calories. One might lose weight, but one might not. Well, the one who's losing weight, we don't touch their calories because they're losing weight. The one who isn't, well, we have to drop their calories. Well, now they're both losing weight and the first one stalls. We drop their calories. Well, now they're both losing weight again and they're both at the same amount of calories again. It just took one person a week longer than the other. So... The, the plan necessarily stays the same. The pace of the plan changes or perhaps uh, athlete, the first athlete likes eating more fats than carbs. Well, then their diet is going to have more fats than carbs because that's a more sustainable approach for them. And so once you know the details and you know the type of athlete that you're dealing with, the decision-making process gets much easier. And if you're an athlete yourself, a general understanding of concepts is great. Having someone to, whose brain you can pick is even better. But if you're not comfortable making those decisions, hiring an educated coach is going to save you a ton of time and headache. Yeah. You said something interesting about the, the scientific literature basically tells us what the average expectation would be, what the average result would be for an athlete, for an individual. And I, I think one thing that often happens is people see let's say a, a social media post, right? That has the average or has what, what most people uh, may do. And then they follow that and it might not be perfect for them. And after week two, after week three, they drop off. And so being aware of this idea that there's going to be individual differences. And as you mentioned, being able to be proactive about identifying those variables having the general idea, but then being able to identify those variables and designing your program to adjust what is truly going to benefit you, I think is crucial. Right, like even on the simplest level, like when you look at how a research study is done, the average results are the ones that get reported. So there are people like, um, I think back to one of the most drastic examples of this is a, a birth control study that I read. The same birth control dosage one woman lost 30 pounds without like without any manipulation of any variables, just adding the birth control. One lost 30 pounds and the other gained 19. 
same pill, but on average, that study reported that there was no change in weight gain because the average participant in the study didn't gain or lose any weight. So there are always going to be outliers. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, everyone's an outlier because really they're not, but just understanding that there is no one size fits all. And, and as you said, you have to try things. You have like, if you don't have a coach, you have to make mistakes in order to learn. I mean, I've made tons of mistakes and that's probably what makes, makes me a better coach because then I don't allow my athletes to make those same mistakes. Once someone gets that down, you know, understands that it's, it's going to be a process and you have to have an open mind and learn every single session to be able to improve. Let's backtrack to the whole, the whole training process, the wanting to, let's say, set a goal of losing weight or set a goal of getting more fit and then following through with that, right? There's so many different training plans. There's going to be so many different um, differences among individuals. But if we were to focus in on the importance of setting goals or setting targets right at the moment of having the intention to want to do something, whatever it might be, losing weight, you know, getting more fit, how important is it to set those goals, to be clear about those goals and targets? And then through your experience, what have you noticed are the best systems to track those goals over time? In setting goals, there's a camp of people that don't believe in goal setting, which I, I get. I do. I get it. Because in most cases, I will get athletes or, or individuals come to me with, with whatever goals they have, and they're clearly defined. I want to achieve X by X date. And this is, this is my, I'm coming to you to help me with my plan. But when you put forth the habits, behaviors, structure, systems, that they're going to need to adhere to in order to achieve that goal, they're simply unwilling to comply. So there's a misalignment between the, the systems and the habits and the willingness to abide by these, this structure in order to achieve the desired goal within the desired timeline. Like, so how much do you weigh? I am at around 150 right now, 150 pounds. So if you weigh 150 pounds, you said, Paul, I want to weigh 200 pounds. I want to keep my abs. I said, I'll say, cool. Do you have five years? Right. It's no, no, no. I want to do it in six months. And I'm like, okay, you want to gain 50 pounds and keep your abs in six months. Well, you know, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat things. You'll probably have to take drugs. You'll probably have to diet a crazy amount and be extremely strict. You'll probably have to never play soccer for those six months and do all these things. Well, if your values don't align with taking drugs and, uh, and not playing soccer anymore and et cetera, et cetera, the goal is useless. It doesn't matter. So what I try to get people to do is have the goal, but the goal should be based on the systems and values that you're willing to adopt in order to achieve it. So a better goal it would be, I would like to gain weight over the next six months. I'm going to adopt the habits and behaviors of someone who is trying to gain weight. So I'm going to eat on a regular schedule. I'm going to have a good sleep schedule. I'm going to decrease my aerobic exercise a little bit. Uh, I'm still a soccer player, so I'm going to still practice my sport, participate in my training, but I will just reduce my energy expenditure a little bit because I don't want to run into appetite problems. Um, those are all healthy habits and values 
that should be sustainable and allow you to increase your body weight over the next six months. Instead of focusing on, I want to run hundred miles, I'm going to adapt to the habits, behaviors, and structures of someone who runs hundred miles. Change it to your identity. You are not, you are not someone who is trying to lose weight. You are, you are a lean person, right? Because eventually you want to be a lean person and you're doing to lose weight to do that. So I'm going to adapt the, adopt the identity of a lean person. And that's what I do. I say that that's the conversation that I have with people around aligning their goals with their values. The number one variable with regards to training, nutrition, habits, structure, anything is compliance. The science is compliance. If you are unable to comply with the plan, number one, you're not going to be able to make modifications to a plan because you're not following anything. Number two, um, you won't you won't know if your plan is working. And number three, you're not you're not going to be able to, to track anything relevant. So or or if you do end up reaching the goal, but you've reached it by some measure of luck, it'll be impossible to sustain it because you weren't compliant with anything coming up. So when it comes to weight loss or weight gain, the way in which you lose weight is going to be the way in which you maintain it through those habits, behaviors, and structures that you built during the process. Maintaining process orientation is the key to everything. You have to find victories within the menial tasks. Like I'm sure you don't go out and, and, and do ball handling drills and think you've won, like, won the World Cup, but the people who won the World Cup go out every morning and do ball handling drills. So it all adds up. So to be able to follow through with that compliance, it's... It's a good idea to have goals, but it's also a good idea to focus on the systems and what it will actually take to achieve those goals. And I think you mentioned your behaviors, your habits, and your structures. Exactly. Making that part of who you are. I really like that idea because there's going to be many times throughout, you know, you're going to have your bad days where you don't want to work out or you don't want to eat a certain way. And instead of thinking... What do I have to do to get to my goals? Instead, think, what would I do as, as someone who is a lean person? What would the, the correct behavior be? Right. Like from, from a simple, like, okay, I don't feel like going to the gym today, but I'm someone who goes to the gym. So I'm going to go to the gym today. Yeah. Plain, plain simple. It's people ask me, they're like, how do you stay motivated to go to the gym when, when, you know, you don't want to. I'm like, I just go to the gym. Like, it's what I do. <laughs> I, the, the expression yeah. is I brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. Right. I brush my teeth every day. I don't really think about it. It's the same thing as going to the gym. I, I go to the gym. Mm. I also wanted to quickly touch on getting a bit technical with the idea of tracking things, because I think it's it's great to talk about all this, but actually having tools that people can use is going to be very effective. So I'm wondering, of course. do you have any recommendations on what people can use? And, you know, we can talk about things like like journaling, maybe maybe having uh, a whiteboard and then we can also talk about frequency you know maybe maybe some starting steps for people is it something they should do weekly monthly um, I think that could help uh, some listeners out sure so on the base on the base of everything I like to have um, I call it my my scaffolding for my day so I have three to five tasks or three to five exercises that I do every single day no matter what 
I call them my non-negotiables. So an example of that could be, I'm going to go on two 30-minute walks. I'm going to read 10 pages of my book. I'm going to journal for 20 minutes. I'm going to go to the gym. And I'm going to set an alarm for my bedtime. Now, if I do all of those things, the ripples, call them big big rocks in a pond, right? You throw a big rock in a pond, it makes a ton of waves. You throw a pebble in a pond, it makes little ripples. Well, those are five big rocks that I just threw in. So by going on two 30-minute walks, I know that I'm going to have a good amount of physical activity. I'm going to have a lot of non-exercise physical activity, which I know is great for my heart health, uh, my metabolism. It'll get me outside. Uh, They're great for mental health and well-being. They'll make me more insulin sensitive, all of those things. Then by reading 10 pages a day, I'm making sure that I'm working my brain. By journaling, I'm making sure that my mental health is in line and I'm keeping keeping on top of myself and that self-care. By going to the gym, I know that I want to train hard and, and perform well. So I'm likely going to pay more attention to my diet. I'm likely going to pay more attention to my stress management so that I can perform and recover. And then by setting an alarm for bedtime, I know I'm going to be getting a good amount of sleep. And because I did all those other things, the quality of that sleep will likely be higher. So by having a scaffolding and building my day around these five tasks, it makes sure that, you know, at least on the base level, I took a step forward today. The other thing we can look at is like measurables. So in terms of measurables, um, I like people to have some sort of awareness about their diet. So whether they track macros, whether they have a specific meal plan that they like to follow, whether it's uh, simply uh, portion sizes and meal frequency, like I make sure to have five servings of protein every day, uh, three servings of fruits and like five servings of vegetables, whatever it might be, some sort of awareness around your dietary intake. I like to have some sort of awareness around sleep. So having an established sleep and wake time, some sort of awareness around uh, tracking your steps. So how much non-exercise physical activity are you doing? Are you not, are you making sure not to be sedentary? The the baseline I like people to shoot for is 8,000 steps a day at a minimum. Um, And then if you want to get even more technical, like athletes in general, I really like tracking morning resting heart rate. Um, I've, I've gotten into all of my higher level competitors Uh, will track their morning resting heart rate. The reason being, it's a great proxy for heart rate variability. So if people are familiar with heart rate variability, the more variable your heart rate, the more uh, parasympathetically dominant or the more relaxed you are. The more regular your heartbeat interval, so the distance between each heartbeat, the more regular that is, the more stressed you are. So by by tracking your morning resting heart rate, because many of these like wearable devices that we have don't track HRV. And you can also just put your fingers on your throat and measure your heart rate. By tracking morning resting heart rate, if there's a variance of 5% or more to your in up in your morning resting heart rate, you're likely overstressed. So it could give you a good indicator of whether you're recovering from training well. So if you're, if you're creating an awareness around those, those areas, 
there it's going to, you're going to be really hard pressed to not make progress. Um, that's daily. Uh, if people like to do a, a weekly check-in with themselves, that's fine. In my experience, weekly check-ins or monthly check-ins tend to get pushed off. So when it comes to lifestyle, ha- lifestyle habits, structures, those types of things, touching on it every day is very important because out of sight, out of mind. And I'd rather know like right away, like, oh shit, I went a whole week without tracking my macros. So ideally daily you have your own unique list of non-negotiables it's going to be different for every person but you have that list and then you also build up a strong level of awareness around the things that are going to set you up towards getting to your goals and making progress along whatever it is that you want to achieve yeah the reason i said awareness and not tracking is there can be an over-reliance on tracking So rather than creating habits and behaviors and awareness, people rely on these things like these, these wearable electronics and they become married to that dopamine rush that they get. So it's like, I'm supposed to hit 8,000 steps a day. Yeah. hit 8,000 steps a day. Well, you would probably hit 8,000 steps if you just focus on going on three short walks a day. So, um, I don't want people to, In my opinion, unless you're trying to achieve something that's outside of the norm or outside of your physical abilities, creating a a general awareness is probably a better idea than objectively tracking. But the more specific and um, I I guess challenging would be the right word, Uh, the more challenging the goal, the more strict the adherence would have to be and the stricter the controls would have to be. Uh, An example is like, I have uh, a few of my clients are older adults. The only things I have them track are the number of steps they take in a day and how much protein they eat. Other than that, they don't track anything. That's because they're, they're not trying to, to push high levels of performance. They're not trying to lose crazy amounts of body fat or gain crazy amounts of muscle. They're just trying to eat eat healthier, get better blood work, those sorts sorts of things. And that doesn't mandate crazy amounts of restriction. How do you approach recovery, whether it's with your own training or with the clients you coach? Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the idea of actively planning recovery into my training. I, I and I think a lot of other people are like this, we, we train, we train, we train. And then when you get to that point where you feel overworked, you let that be your signal to too late have some recovery to relax but it is too late so what's your approach to that do you do you think planning it is a good idea or is there something else we should be doing i would say it depends on the period of training so i look at i look at recovery as both like on the on the large scale like big picture and then in in between each individual day so from the base level of a training session as soon as you're done training your recovery should start So I will typically program or recommend um, five to 10 minutes of some sort of down-regulation drill, whether it's uh, breath work, whether it's light static stretching, uh, whether it's uh, different uh, soft tissue modalities, something to like get the athlete on the floor relaxed. And, and get back into this parasympathetic state that I mentioned earlier, this rest and digest state. 
The easiest way to access that is through breath. So typically the stuff I do post-workout will incorporate breath work. Sooner we can get parasympathetic, the sooner we can start recovering. Then I look at movement. So the more movement we can have throughout the day, the less static our tissues will be, the better our blood flow will be. And as long as the intensity is, is low, like walking will not be something you need to recover from. But the more walking we can do, our hips stay active, our lower back stay active. We have an arm swing, we have rotation through the torso, our abs are turned on. Walking is probably the most biggest bang for your buck thing that you can do in your day. Then you think people say recovery, you immediately think of like massage guns and like all this other stuff. Those, any type of passive modality, so acupuncture, uh, ART, massage, Cairo, any of those things, those are stressors. We don't think about it that way, but they're micro stressors because we, we have a targeted micro stress to a tissue, which requires the body to send blood and nutrients to that area. Or we have a mechanical stimulation to that area that downregulates the nervous system, but it's a stressor. It's a targeted micro stressor. So these all have to be factored into your total load of stress. Like if you go train and then you parasympathetically downregulate, and then you go to the Cairo and they start jamming on you with ART and you get really fired up. Well, you're, you're sympathetic again, you're aroused. So thinking, having a broad understanding of these things is important. The next is the big picture of recovery. Your nutrition has to be on point. You have to hydrate. So think about this, if people are like, how much water should I drink a day? I'm like, well, it takes eight liters of water to make one almond. So you should probably drink a lot of water. So getting a gallon and a half or six liters of water a day is probably a good start for you. Um, then making sure you get enough sleep and that you're managing your stress. If you can do the, those four things, so, so nutrition or five things, nutrition, movement, hydration, sleep and stress management, you're going to be maximizing your recovery to the best of your abilities. Unless those five things are taken care of, might as well throw your money in the garbage for those massage guns and vibrating foam rollers and glorified sex toys. That is very interesting. I think many of us, including myself, and you know, I've evolved this way of thinking, but when we think about recovery, we think about just resting, just chilling on a couch. Yeah, but that but that's stress management. That's that could be a nap. Mm. Right? Like that it, that that's part of it, right? You're not wrong. But that's part of it. So essentially it's about balancing these different modalities that you talked about and getting a better understanding of the passive ones the active ones, even some, something you mentioned that really um, turned on a light in me is this idea that walking, something as simple as walking can prevent our tissues from getting static. And, you know, when you said, when you said that, when you brought it up, it, it got me thinking about going for team walks before a game. Mm -hmm. You know, something as simple as that gets the blood flow going and 
you know, gets the nutrients to those to those tissues and gets you better prepared for the actual competition. But just having the overall understanding that there's going to be those active you know, modalities and then there's also going to be those passive ones and that you need to be strategic about balancing those in your recovery. So, OK, so there's two things. I've never gone on a walk and felt worse coming back home. I agree. <laughs> and Fred, I had to look it up. I had to look up who the quote was from so I could give them credit. Yeah. Never trust a thought you've had indoors. Ooh. Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche. That's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. Like I do some of my best thinking while I'm walking. Just being outside. And, I, and sometimes I'll go on, I call them active walks where I'll focus on my foot strike and I'll nasal breathe and, and, and have a nice like big arm swing. But sometimes I just go for a walk because it's nice to be outside. And I don't listen to any music. Like when I take my dog to the dog park, it's, a, it's an off-leash dog park and there's some forest and stuff. I won't bring my music. I'll just listen to the sound of the ground under my feet. And there's a ton of research about grounding or connecting with the environment being tremendous for your central nervous system, for your stress. And I can absolutely test as, as woo-woo as it might be. Shit works, man. Yeah, and it's one of those things that is free and we can do it at any given time. Yep. Except midwinter. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be pretty bad to take take a walk out in the snow. <laughs> I did it every single day. I think I had one day the whole winter where I was under 8,000 steps. One. Nice. You just got to force yourself to bundle up and go. One thing that is really cool about the winter too is I haven't gone for longer walks like you have, but sometimes I wake up and I just open up the door and, and walk right out in front of my house and that cold air that fresh air just wakes you up for the day it slaps you in the face <laughs> it hurts to breathe on the topic of stress i think this is something that is that often is underestimated or is just overlooked how can stress impact our training and our fitness goals if we fail to manage it and and be aware of it so like on the base level, like physiological level, stress is an accumulation of cortisol in the bloodstream. So cortisol is released by the adrenal glands and it is released during times when we need to fight or flight. So it's, it's released during times when we need fuel mobilization. So cortisol is actually what wakes us up in the morning. It's one of the hormones that starts the hormonal cascade of it's time for you to wake up and move. The issue is when you have high circulating cortisol, there's a number of negative health repercussions that come from that. Like deposition of adipose tissue, chronic fatigue, poor insulin sensitivity. Um, these are all things that will lead to worse body composition, worse performance, worse health outcomes. So when we're stressed, by and large, stress is a perception. Most of the stress that you feel is based on your perception of your environment or what's happening to you. Some things are unavoidable, but it's your perception. I, like as, as rough as it is going to sound, like if my mother passed away, it's not, it's not something I did to myself. It doesn't directly affect my emotions per se, 
but losing my mother would cause me a lot of stress because I perceive it as something stressful. And that can be downplayed to the simple thing of my phone won't turn on today. That's stressful because I run my business off my phone and now I'm stressed. So learning strategies to both get perspective on what you're actually stressed about, which is why journaling is so effective. And then learning ways to manage your stress or build in strategies within your day to deal with it better. So if you're familiar with Stoicism, Stoicism is a a branch of philosophy that is very heavily predicated on neutrality. Nothing is good or bad. It's your perceptions of it that make it good or bad. So if you get to this higher level of understanding of this is something bad, it's happened to me, now I have to respond to it in a way that is beneficial for the rest of my life. So returning to that you know, morose example of my mother passing away, I can be sad about my mother passing away, absolutely. But how do I move forward? How do I pay homage to her life? How do we celebrate what she brought to the world? How do we move forward in a positive way? And it's funny because once we get to that point and we start acting in that manner, we start to feel better about what's going on. So if my phone dies and I can't use it, well, I can go to the, to the phone store. I can call customer service from someone else's phone. I can do a number of different things. And as soon as I start working to solve the problem, the problem somehow seems smaller. So one thing that I try to do with that understanding in mind, one thing I try to do is create space between the stimulus and the response. So the stimulus between me putting my hand on the stove and me taking my hand off the stove, stimulus response, that time in between is mine. I decide what to do with it. The next is I build my day in a way where those little things don't bother me as much because everything else is in my control. So if I have that la- that that scaffolding to my day and I'm dealing with things that I know need to get done. I know that I'm taking care of everything and I'm going to get a win. If a little wrench gets thrown into that, it's like, well, I've already got things taken care of. I can handle this. So if you're, if you're familiar with, with Jocko Willink's concept of discipline equals freedom by being disciplined in your life and by being disciplined with your structures, you have the freedom to deal with things that come up. And they don't have to take up as much bandwidth because the other stuff, you're not spinning plates anymore. If you're spinning plates and then one starts wobbling and you're having to go over here, like, no, you can focus on one thing at a time because everything is within your control. And then if one starts wobbling, it's easy to address. That was jam packed with a lot of useful value. Went off there. It's good. Just to quickly recap, building the skill of being able to reframe situations or reframe stress is very useful, right? And to be able to do that, one of the ways you mentioned, or essentially the way to do it is to create space between the stimulus and the response because it gives greater opportunity for you to to reframe and to change your perspective. Exactly. And I, I never do I want to give someone the impression that you shouldn't feel your feelings. 
you absolutely should feel your feelings. If something stresses you out, be stressed, but then be prepared to understand why you're stressed. Because like the phone thing, maybe your phone is a coping strategy for the rest of your life. And without your phone to occupy your mind, you end up thinking about random stuff and that, that irritates you and that stresses you out. You're not necessarily stressed that your phone is dead. You're stressed that you now have to face the world. That's a really profound thing that you just found out because you elongated the time between stimulus and response. Your feelings hold so much knowledge, but if you stay stuck in them, that's where the problems lie. You stay stuck in your problems and stuck in this paralysis. You're stuck in that stimulus response. You're stuck at the response. You have to move past it into the, the solving problems part. What are some ways we can create that space between stimulus and response? I know meditation is a very popular one. Does anything else come to mind that people can practice? I am a big, I've tried meditation on a number of occasions. It's been very challenging for me to actually, number one, find time, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes to sit. Um, But I find I actually started meditating. I did a meditation course and I couldn't stop falling asleep. (laughs) Whenever, whenever I would get my body to a relaxed state, um, it was called yoga nidra. So it's like yoga sleep. So you do this breath practice to get to a sleep state, but you're actually awake. That's, that's like the goal, but I would always fall asleep. And every since, ever since then, anytime I have like meditation practice, I always fall asleep. So now what I do is I just journal for me. Journaling has been a lifesaver, putting down on paper, everything I'm thinking and just knowing that, I can write this down and get it off my chest and move on has been very therapeutic. So that for me has been the way that I elongate that distance because I understand the feelings that I'm feeling and why I'm feeling them. So journaling, meditation, breath practice, um, any type of mindfulness practice is effective. Uh, I think more, more people would benefit from just sitting with their feelings a little bit, just being all up in your feels. It sounds easy, but I think for a lot of people, it's a difficult process to do because as soon as you get alone and you don't have input, you don't have stimulus, your brain starts having all these different thoughts. And it is a difficult process at first, but just like many things, practicing it and actually going through the experience over weeks and months, you start developing greater peace with silence and with acknowledging those thoughts and, and those emotions that might um, might come up and, and internalizing it and then being able to build that skill of reframing them and, and redefining you know what something might mean. Exactly, yeah. Paul, what is your morning routine? <laughs> you know what, I'm gonna have a moment of honesty. My morning routine the last three to five weeks has been to wake up, make a coffee, let my dogs out and start working. That has been my morning routine and it has been absolutely killing me um, because I'm, as you know, I'm a very routine oriented person, uh, but I've taken on more than I can chew with regards to work. 
and I had to get it done. Uh, but since I have quit my full-time job and I'm now fully self-employed, something that I've worked for the last, you know, three years to, to achieve. Um, actually, I would say like I started my business six years ago. So six years. Um, I plan to reinstate the morning routine that I had previous to the last five months, which is I'll wake up, make my coffee, let the dogs out in the backyard. I'll read my book for about 10 to 20 minutes while I sip my coffee. Then I'm going to journal, go for a walk with the dog, come home, have my breakfast and then start the day. For me, that, that time of, of reading and journaling and walking, it sets my day off on such the right foot. Oh, and I will add to that. My phone will not be touched until I get home from that walk. And, and like, for me, that is the most peaceful way to start the day. Nothing is going to happen in the world before 630 in the morning. I'll be okay. And I can handle it at 630. Having that routine is so important. And that routine is going to be different, different for everyone. But it goes back to what you were saying about the non-negotiables. Just knowing that you have some type of structure to your day so that whatever might happen, you know you're going to have that structure and then you're going to be better set up to take on the actual main portion of your day. Right. So the other piece that I'll throw in there is that most people do their best when they're on a time crunch. So if I give you a deadline and you know, okay, I have to have this done, I'm going to do it. It's going to be done well. Yes. So as soon as I take eight hours out of my day to sleep, I take another three out of three hours out of my day to, to train and walk. I'm at 11 hours. Then I know that it probably takes me about an hour total to eat my meals a day, which sounds like a lot, but I eat often. So I'm at 12 hours. It's half my day is gone. Now, if I have a full-time job, I coach 70 athletes. I own a coaching platform and I own an app. That 12 hours goes by really quickly, but because I've already taken out the time I need for me, it makes me more efficient in those 12 hours. So we can put in place these time constraints. We can make our own deadlines simply by prioritizing the things we really want to do. So whenever someone comes to me and says, I have poor time management, I'm like, cool. How much time a day do you devote to you? And they're like, oh, I have no time for me. I'm like, that's your fucking problem. Book appointments with yourself. Book an appointment at 5 p.m. that you're going to go to the gym. Book an appointment at 9 p.m. when you're going to go to sleep. Book an appointment between 5 a.m. and uh, 7 a.m. where you're going to read and walk. And then you can let other people book your time. But your time is yours. The idea of creating this sense of pressure in your life as long as it's controlled, right? So you have you have the time for yourself, right? but then because you have been productive with that time for yourself, you're then going to be more efficient in whatever is left. Something I've been thinking about a lot, especially as I'm entering this exam season right now, and there's just so many tasks going on, I find that being able to create those almost artificial deadlines, because sometimes they're not there, but if you're able to create them, then it can give you a sense of drive and urgency to be more productive in those times. I found that a, a useful skill to develop. And it 
comes second to setting that time out for yourself and being able to plan and being able to be more intentional with, with what you do want to do during that chunk of time. I learned how to do that when I was in school. Like when I was in my undergrad, um, I remember during exam season, I literally used to schedule everything. Mm-hmm. times I would eat times I would sleep times I would train times I would take a nap times I would go for a walk my my schedule is literally like it was one of those like it was back in the day so it was a written agenda and like no google calendars back in the day written agenda everything from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed everything was scheduled I was I scheduled time with my girlfriend I was like oh yeah you got from 5 to 6 p.m that's it <laughs> and it was I was I had to be like that. And it felt it got even more ingrained in me with grad school because I was going to grad school and then coaching 60 hours a week and, you know, trying to, trying to have a life. Well, I wanted to get good grades. So I had to study at some point. I literally planned every single hour of every single day down to like, you could take a shit between nine and nine fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. This has been an amazing conversation. Let's finish off with a couple of quick fire questions. So these are more for fun. You can answer these in a sentence or a couple sentences. Sure. The first one is what brings you the most joy? Right now, my dogs. Nice. Your favorite moment at a meet? Uh, In 2018, I squatted 777. Um, which at the time wasn't a PR, but a year previous I had torn my quad. So I came back and I squatted that in front of a bunch of friends and it was, it was, it was really great. That's awesome. So I know you're a heavy lifter. I'm wondering, have you done any type of endurance events? And if not, is that something that you would be open to trying in the future? I ran a half marathon in university. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and I also mountain bike. And, uh, like I have a, I have a mountain bike I take it out probably once a week and, um, I just bought a road bike. Cool. So cool. yeah, um, I, I love just being outside and being active. Um, yeah, I also, I do conditioning every couple times a week, every week, nice. uh, in terms of like sprint intervals on the airdyne or different types of kettlebell circuits and farmer walks. I have, uh, I have a bunch of, I have a few sleds and some very heavy med balls in my garage that I'll take out into the road. I'll bring my rower outside, do some rower rowing and do that in the laneway. The neighbors think I'm fucking crazy. But <laughs> well, it'd be nice to do with all this sunshine now. I need a tan. Plus I'm jacked right now. So I gotta, <laughs> gotta let it out. Let's say you could only do three exercises for the rest of your life. Which ones would you pick? Pull-ups. Uh, pull-ups, incline bench press, and some form of split squat, like a Bulgarian split squat. No deadlift? No. As soon as I'm done powerlifting, I will never deadlift with a straight bar. Or sorry, I will never dead like competition deadlift. I will never competition squat or squat with a bar on my back. And I will never bench press, flat bench press ever again. Is it because of the issues with your back that it will no i just don't i don't see the bang for the buck like if if my if i'm done training for competition i'm going to want to choose exercises that don't make me sore mm-hmm. and that help me build muscle and look good the power lifts as they're performed in competition are meant to be as integrative as possible and use the most amount of musculature so you can use the most amount of load over the shortest amount of distance those are things that don't benefit someone who's trying to build muscle 
I would just avoid them altogether. Plus, if I'm not going to be competing, I don't want to do movements where I know I'm weaker than I used to be. Because just from a mental aspect, like I would never want to bench press because I'm like, oh, I've benched 440 before and now I'm benching 315. Ugh. I don't want to feel defeated. So I'm going to choose movements that, you know, I don't necessarily have a PR on so that I can keep building and keep seeing positive progress. That makes sense. Share with us one of your bucket list items that you still haven't completed. I haven't traveled outside North America. I have not been, I've not been to anywhere other than Canada and the U S until last year. I had never even been to Western Canada. Um, So I've driven across the country twice now, uh, which has been awesome, but I would definitely love to travel overseas to Europe and just sightsee and, I wouldn't say backpacking because I don't think I would, I'm I'm more of a, how do I put this? Like I would never go camping. I would go glamping. Like I would go like, I would like rent an RV and like do that. Yeah. I don't like being dirty. So I would go like stay at hotels in nice cities, but I wouldn't like stay at a hostel or anything like that. Mm, I see. Describe yourself in five words. Hmm. Stubborn. Uh, driven, empathetic, stubborn. <laughs> oh, I know I said that twice. Um, I would say that uh, I'm resilient and I would say that I'm trying to find the right word. I'm not something something that would say that i'm not if uh my physical appearance does not represent like who i actually like i'm very much in a a different yeah um i'm i guess i'm an onion (laughs) many layers interesting let's say you want to get to know a person to a deeper level but you only have two questions what would your two questions be (laughs) the only two questions that pop into my mind right away were uh have you seen Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I haven't. I haven't. He, he pulls the kid aside. He brings the kid and he like pulls him in close. He's like, who's your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> um, I would probably ask. I would, I would probably ask them if they're happy. And I would ask them based on their answer, how they got to the, where they are or how they plan to change it. Because I think a lot of us, myself included, don't take the time to actually think about if we're enjoying what we're doing. And we end up in this, we call it a rat race, call it a a merry-go-round, whatever, of waking up and doing the same things all the time. Well, if those same things are not making you happy, you better throw a monkey wrench in that thing and shake it up. And if you are happy, fuck, I want to learn how you got there. You know, like, um, and that's been a change in perspective for me uh, over the last few years because I thought I was happy. And then a monkey wrench got thrown into my world and I realized, whoa, whoa, you're not really as happy as you think you are. There's a lot of changes you can be making. And I started making those changes and lo and behold, I started getting happier. And this, you know, quitting my day job and and going full bore self-employed was a big part of what, what's going to make me happy long-term. 
and hope, and if it does great, if it doesn't, well, I took a step forward and I can pivot and, and change course if I need to. 100%. Paul, where can we connect with you and find out more about you? So you can find me on Instagram at Paul O'Need or my business pages at Master Athletic Performance um, or at Coach's Corner U or at MetriLife underscore. Um, I'm also sponsored by Bacon and Barbells Apparel. So if you go over to baconandbarbells.co and use the code Paul10, I can get a discount on their sweet stuff. Also Subject Zero Supplements, uh, subjectzerosups.com. Uh, they have, they're all evidence-based, um, ethically dosed products, and uh, I use all of them. They're fantastic, and there's no proprietary blends in any of them. And you can use code Paul10 over there as well. That's it, man. Awesome. All those links uh, are going to be in the show notes, so make sure you check out Paul, connect with Paul, one of the most technical, detailed, and experienced individuals I've had the pleasure of getting to know. Thank you. Paul, to finish off the podcast, I would love for you to leave everyone off with a final message just as they're wrapping up this podcast. This can be about anything, but just some final words from you as they are going on to attack the rest of their day. Have fun. Beautiful. Have fun. <laughs> I love it. That's a, that's a good message to end it off. Paul, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 8 Billion Gifts podcast. Check out the links in the description if you are looking to get connected with this week's guest. This is a great platform to expand your network, connect with people who come on, and to learn something new at the same time. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring a new story and mindset. In the meantime, keep learning, keep growing, and have an amazing day.